The Old Testament reading is from Genesis 15, verse 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham's, Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offsprings, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll read Psalm 33 responsively. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. It is fitting for the just to be thankful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Sing praises to him, the ten-stringed lute. Sing unto him a new song. Make skillful melody and cry aloud with joy. The Lord is true and all his works are faithful. He loves righteousness and true judgment. Of the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. He gathers the waters of the sea together as in a heap and lays up the deep as in a treasure house. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to naught. He makes the devices of the peoples to be of no effect and casts out the counsel of the counsel of the Lord shall endure forever, and the thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. The Lord looks down from heaven and beholds all the children of men. From the habitation of his dwelling, he considers all those who dwell on the earth. He fashions all the hearts of them and understands all their works. There is no king who can be saved by a mighty host, neither is any mighty man delivered by great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him and upon those who put their trust in his mercy. Our soul has patiently waited for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. Let 
Let your merciful kindness, O Lord, be upon us as we have put our trust in you. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. The New Testament reading is from Hebrews 11, 1 to 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended for having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Those all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of that land from which they have gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 8, verses 38 through 49. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. 
This starts kind of in the middle of a sentence. So right before this, Jesus was speaking with the Pharisees and the chief scribes. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I hear, that I, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were really your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am now here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of the father, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do as your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why will you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right to say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, but the one, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now, that, nah, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did all the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say to you that I do not know Him, I would be a liar just like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the gospel of the Lord. So if you have a Bible, um, open up to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible today, there are extra of these blue Bibles on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those is yours to keep as our gift to you. Hebrews 11 is sometimes referred to as the, um, the great hall of faith or the heroes of faith. And it talks right at the beginning about how um, all of these things that these people did were done by faith grounded in hope. And those are two very loaded terms. What does it mean for us to have hope, and what does it mean for us to have faith? These two concepts are central to who we are as Christians. It's central to our life together. It's central to our relationship to God. And this passage in Hebrews illustrates so well how, how the followers of God, from the time of the children of Adam and Eve all the way up to today, 
how the followers of God live by faith that is rooted in hope. And faith simply means trust or belief. Faith does not mean turning your brain off and going with your emotions. And our faith is rooted in hope. And hope, and this is crucial to understand, hope in the biblical sense, the word elpidos in Greek, hope does not mean wish. Hope does not mean I hope it's going to be nice weather on our vacation. The way that they define hope, hope is a certainty of a future event. It's a, it's a dead set certainty of something that simply hasn't happened yet. The symbol of hope throughout the history of the church has always been an anchor. Uh, our diocese is called the Diocese of Christ Our Hope, and, and the, the icon for our diocese is an anchor for that reason. Because hope, we, we anchor our hope in a, in a certain future event, and it pulls us forward toward that. So this is a great passage, Hebrews 11, to show the connection of God's people throughout all of, of biblical history. The faith of the people in Genesis is the same faith of the people in the New Testament times is the same faith of us today. One God, never changing. One covenant people, one church. And so this is a great passage to, to dig out some kind of beliefs and doctrines of the church, talking about faith and hope, but is that why the guy who wrote this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, is that why he wrote this into there? So that we could talk about doctrine? Probably not. If you read throughout the, the book of Hebrews, this part was meant to be inspirational. It's very similar to the, the passage that we did last week in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 6, putting on the full armor of God. It's him calling them, exhorting them to be firm in their faith, to stand firm, and to be true to what they know. And basically, he's giving them snapshots of how to persevere. Because right as he's right before he's talking about persevering in this Christian life, he's talking about how we experience suffering. And each of these stories from the Old Testament that the writer can point to, they're, they're examples of men and women of faith. Ordinary men and women who God chose to draw to himself and use as, as really important and memorable points in the redemption story that he is telling. And we only read about half of it. It's really a, a monster passage. It's we read verses 1 through 16, and it goes all the way through verse 40. It talks about Abel and Enoch, which we heard. We heard about Noah and Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob. We didn't hear about Joseph and Moses and the Israelite slaves, Rahab the prostitute, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. It's a big list of people. And each of them is to be commended for the part that they play in God's story of redemption. And each of them is to be commended for their faith, and they should be. Because the writer to the Hebrews has written his whole book with the assumption that the people he was writing to would have a great big familiarity with the Old Testament. So he must have known that the audience would be familiar with the whole story of each one of these people. And if you know the whole story of each one of these people, you have to ask yourself, how can we look at these admittedly terribly flawed people and call them faithful? This is a question that we can ask ourselves about ourselves as well. So how can we look at these terribly flawed people and call them faithful to God? The reason is because it's always the object of our faith that saves us, not our faith itself. If that was true, then anybody who had great faith in Islam or Hindu or their own bank account or whatever, 
would be saved. But it's the object of our faith that counts. If it was the faith itself that counted, then I myself would be my own savior, basically, because I'm ginning up this faith within myself. But it isn't my faith that saved me any more than it was Abraham's faith that saved him. In both cases, us today and Abraham, along with everybody else who's ever trusted in the promises of God, you or me or Abel or Noah or Abraham, it is Christ who saves them. And if that sounds strange to you, we'll, we'll get there near the end. So when we think about the Old Testament faith of Abraham, the, the founder of the Israelite nation, it's great to think about that both in terms of this passage here, but also in terms of our gospel passage. In our gospel passage, and this illustrates how the object of our faith is the thing that saves us. In our gospel passage, Jesus uses a very, very interesting sentence construction at the end of that big tirade that he was having against the Jewish leaders of the day. He was talking about the... <clears throat> He was talking about the faith of Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. He said that Abraham trusted in the promises of God and that Abraham was longing to see the redemption that God had promised. He was longing to see the day when God would fulfill his covenant promise that through the, the, the line of Abraham, through the offspring of Abraham, that all the people of the world would be blessed. And now, by the time the gospel events happened, Jesus had come. So he's talking with the leaders and the chief priests of the day, and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it, and he was really glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50. How is it that you know Abraham? Abraham had lived about 1,800 years before this. So they're saying, how is that even possible that you know what Abraham thought? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. In terms of tenses and, and grammar, that can sound a little odd. Maybe it's a mistranslation. Maybe it's even a typo. Until you realize that Jesus is making a massive, profound theological statement with what he was saying there. I am. In Greek, it's ego eimi. I am. Without getting into a whole bunch of Greek grammar, that is a very odd way of saying I am. You really only see it other times when you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Because ego eimi in Greek is just a translation of Yahweh in Hebrew. I am. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 3, God is talking to Moses from out of a burning bush, and Moses says, okay, who should I tell, you? Who should I tell the people is sending me? Who are you? What's your name? And God says, you tell them, I am has sent, you, has sent them to you. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time picked up stones to stone Jesus immediately after saying this, it wasn't because they didn't like him. It wasn't because they were upset with his message of loving God and loving neighbor. It was because he was saying, I am the Lord your God, in effect. They picked up stones to stone him because he was blaspheming. And that's what you're supposed to do with blasphemers. If you follow the Old Testament law, the whole assembled people are supposed to come out and stone a blasphemer. So they were really doing what the law thought they should do, except that it was actually God himself, the lawgiver, who was standing in front of them. Because if he was lying, then he should be stoned. If he was telling the truth, if he really was God the Son, the Redeemer promised all the way back in Genesis, 
if he really was telling the truth, then maybe they should listen to him. And the Bible tells us that it was this Jesus. This Jesus was the one in whom Abraham trusted, even though he had no idea who that was going to be. The Bible tells us that this Jesus was the one that Isaac trusted and Jacob trusted and hoped for because they trusted in the promises of God that he had made to their father Abraham. The promise of God was to bring redemption and reconciliation and restoration. They couldn't have possibly known that it was going to be 1,800 years later and it was going to be someone named Jesus of Nazareth that they were believing in. But they believed what God told them because God was the one that told it to them. And that faith that they had was counted to them as righteousness. The work of the people of God is to believe in the one who God sent. We are told this. And that is our work. The work of the people of God is to believe in the one that God has sent. Because it's always, no matter how big your faith or no matter how small your faith, it is always the object of our faith that saves us. Our faith does not save us. Christ saves us. But most of this passage in Hebrews 11 is not talking about what God has already done for us. It's talking about what these people in this great hall of faith passage, what they did and what they believed. And so, if you just read this passage by itself, start at Hebrews 11, end at the beginning of Hebrews 12. If you read it by itself, without reading what comes before it, you might think that faith was more about the product of our faith rather than the object of our faith. Except that the author of the letter to the Hebrews had just spent chapters 1 through 10 talking about who the object of our faith is. Some people have said that if you had to sum up the book of Hebrews in one sentence, it would be, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than the high priests and sacrifices of the Old Testament. He's better than the temple. He is the fulfillment of everything that had been told to the Israelites up to this point. He is the way that God set up to give us unfettered access to God. He is the way that God set up to give us forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with our Creator. That's chapters 1 through 10 of Hebrews. And so then we get to chapter 11. We start to see what the product of this faith is. The first one mentioned is Abel. Cain and Abel. We don't know a ton about them. And we're not 100% sure why God might not have seen Cain's offering as pleasing. But we know from the beginning of Genesis, that he found that the brothers Cain and Abel came to God with a sacrifice offering. And God found Cain's offering to be unpleasing, but he found Abel's offering to be pleasing. But the inference that, that people make is that they already knew exactly what God wanted of them. They had probably been told, maybe from their parents who literally walked in the garden with God, they had probably been told what God wanted of them. And that's a reasonable assumption. So they knew it, Abel did it, Cain didn't do it. He willfully turned away from God. And when God favored Abel over Cain, Cain seethed with anger and jealousy and he rose up and he murdered his brother. Abel's faith worked itself out in obedience to, God, to what God wanted. Even though it cost him because of it. There's something to remember in that. Abel's faith worked itself out in obedience to what God commanded of him. His faith was counted to him as righteousness, and he is still spoken of to this day, even though it cost him dearly. 
Then we get to Enoch. We're going to skip Enoch. There's not a lot in the Bible about Enoch, and I don't know much about him either, so we're skipping him because I don't want to talk about him. Um, Noah. Noah heard from God, mankind has become so wicked that I'm going to start over with you and your family. Now go build an ark. Here's the dimensions. And fill it with two of every kind of animal. And Noah obeyed. Noah's faith worked itself out in obedience to what God had commanded of him. Then we come to Abraham. Before God called him, we don't know anything about him. Probably no one special. Local rich guy. God chose him. And he told to him, go. Calling of Abraham, what's called the Abrahamic Covenant, actually takes place over three chapters in Genesis. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, which we heard read out today, and Genesis 17. Now in Genesis 12, which we didn't hear, God says to Abraham, get up, go from your country and your land and your family, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And through you, that is through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham went. He was already getting on in years by this time, but he took his old self and his old wife, and they got up and they left. They followed God because they trusted in God. Abraham's faith works itself out in obedience to what God had commanded of him. And that's, if you hear that over and over, that's what the writer of the Hebrews is getting at. Let your faith work itself out in your life by following the commandments of God. We aren't saved by our deeds, but our deeds flow out of our beliefs. If God is who he says he is, if he has created us, and if he has redeemed us by his word, then perhaps we should take the commandments that he gives us seriously. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying, stand firm in your faith. Listen when God speaks, and then live that out boldly. And God has spoken in this very book. In this very book of Hebrews, it says in the first chapter that long ago, in, many, in, in olden times and in many ways, God spoke through prophets. But today, he has spoken to us primarily and chiefly through his word, through Jesus, and the record written down of what he said and what he did. And so just like Paul last week with the armor of God stuff, the writer here is holding up these, these Old Testament people of faith who trusted in God who were saved by Christ and who then acted out of the trust that they had in God. If we believe that Jesus was real, if we believe that his death and resurrection were real, then we get to act in the exact same way as these great heroes of the faith. And we get to live out our faith by taking the commands of Jesus seriously. So, the object of our faith is Christ, and it is Christ who saves us, not our faith itself. But the product of our faith is how God continues to spread his story of redemption out into the world. And he gives us these people from the Old Testament to look at. There's only one problem with that. As I said, the writer to the the Hebrews seems to assume that his audience is going to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Old Testament. So if we look at the actual stories of these people, If you look at the actual Old Testament narrative, you start to get a clearer picture of who they are, and it can actually raise some questions. Because the writer to the Hebrews reaches way back in time to start his list, right? He goes all the way back, but he doesn't go quite all the way back. He doesn't go back to the first couple, Adam and Eve. He starts with their kids. Because Adam and Eve are rarely held up as models of 
faithfulness, right? I mean, the thing that we remember them most for is that because of their actions, the entire human race inherited this sin nature that we are inherently fallen creatures who do all manner of evil, right? Like Adam and Eve not normally held up as titans of the faith, and yet we see how God provides for them. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had broken literally the one law that God said, don't do this thing, and they did it, God said that they had broken their covenant with him, that they had broken their relationship with him, that they had brought shame and sin and uncleanness into this garden temple that he had built, and they had to go. And yet, even as he cast them out of the garden, he still continued to care for them. He said, because of your sin, you are going to feel the shame of nakedness. And then he made clothes for them. He said, here's the consequences of your sin. You're going to have pain in childbirth, and you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. And then he blessed them with children and with helpers. And these children, these helpers, the first two guys mentioned, Cain and Abel, after Cain murders his brother in cold blood, God says to Cain, what is this wicked thing that you have done? Where is your brother? And Cain says, uh, am I supposed to be my brother's keeper? To which the unspoken answer from God was, yeah, yeah, you are. God said, what is this thing that you have done? The, the voice of your brother, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the very ground. And yet, even after Cain had done this thing, how did, God, how did God react to Cain? By protecting him. God placed on him the, the mark of Cain, which is a phrase that you might have heard, but did you know that it's actually a good thing? He placed the mark of Cain on top of Cain, and this was a blessing from God. God protected him and said that anyone who takes revenge on Cain, that God will take revenge on them sevenfold. God threw him off the land and cursed him to be a wanderer, but... Before he did, he protected him. He placed his hand of blessing on him. There's nothing to suggest that Cain did not believe in God or turn his back on him. There's nothing to suggest that Cain became an enemy of God because of this wicked sin. Cain sinned against God and against his neighbor. In this case, he sinned against his very brother. And that sin had real-world consequences, as sin always does. God said, you've transgressed the sanctity of this land that I gave you and you can't be here anymore. you got to go. But I am still with you. Because that's part of this faith that we have. The belief that we have that God is who he says he is. That he is a God who forgives. How was Cain forgiven? Jesus hadn't come yet. There'd been no cross. There'd been no resurrection. How was Cain forgiven? How was Noah forgiven? When after the ark came to land, he got so falling down drunk that he stripped naked in front of his family and made a fool in front of God and everyone. How was Abraham forgiven? When after God told him, you are going to be a blessing to the entire world and I'm going to bless you and bless everyone through you. Even after God told him that, Abraham didn't trust in the promises of God, at least briefly enough, that he blatantly lied to the king of Egypt out of some misplaced sense of self-protection. How was he forgiven for that sin? How were Abraham and Isaac, I'm sorry, how were um, Abraham and Sarah forgiven when they stopped trusting in the promises of God that he said, I'm going to give you kids? And they took matters into their own hands to get an offspring. Sarah sent her servant Hagar in to sleep with Abraham and they had a kid together. How were they forgiven for that? Other great titans in the hall of faith, Jacob, 
Jacob, don't even, don't even get us started on Jacob. He stole his brother's birthright. He tricked his uncle. He impersonated his brother. And then there's the ones that we didn't read out near the end of the chapter. These get really good. Gideon from the book of Judges. Didn't trust in the promises of God. Made God prove that his word was true. And then said, God's the king of this country. I don't want to be a king. And then immediately proclaimed himself king. Barak abdicated his responsibility that God has given him as protector of his people. Samson, this guy was just, I mean, this, this guy was a complete disaster. We don't even have time for that. Jephthah, Jephthah made a vow to God that he didn't need to make, carried through on a promise that he made to God that he didn't need to do, and sacrificed his own daughter as a result of that. How was he forgiven? How was David, King David, how was David forgiven for murdering his friend, this person who was supposed to be under his protection just so he could sleep with his wife? These are titans of the faith. These are held up as examples to us in Hebrews 11. How were they forgiven? How could God possibly forgive these things if Jesus hadn't been born yet? Why would we believe that they will someday see the resurrection like we will? Why should we believe that they were saved? They were saved the exact same way that you and I are if you trust in the promises of God. They were saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. How could something that happened after they were born atone for the things that they did in their life? Shouldn't God have just judged them on the spot when they died? Well, yeah, except that how do we think that something that we did thousands of years after Jesus lived could possibly be forgiven by blood that dried up 2,000 years ago at the foot of a cross? The way we can know that to be true is this passage actually tells us that it's true, so that's one thing. At the very end of this monster chapter that we only read half of, it says that all of these things, all of these, I'm sorry, all of these people were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us all so that they would not be made perfect without us. That is to say, everyone who is saved by God, everyone who trusts, who puts their faith and belief in the promises of God, everyone who is saved by grace through faith is saved one way and one way only the blood of Christ. Because God does not operate in time like you and I do. And so if we believe that, that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that his glorious resurrection, if those, things were, uh, if those things are true for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, forward through time, then they would equally be true for the people that came before us backwards through time. All of those sins of everyone who has ever called on the name of the Lord, past, present, and future, born by cross, by Christ on the cross. Because none of these people that we read about in the Old Testament before, before Jesus came, before redemption was offered, none of them would have been good enough to save themselves on their own because no one is ever good enough to work themselves up to goodness to the point that God can look at them and say, okay, now you're good enough to, to be in my kingdom. And yet, God continues to find broken people, sinful people, and call them to himself. And the faith that these broken, sinful people had, they trusted in a God who would redeem and restore in the exact same way that we do. They trusted in a God who would rescue and forgive in the same way that we do. And the product of their faith was action, and that is to be commended and followed. Following the commands of God, because if the promises of God are true, then the commands of God are true as well. So these people are held up in Hebrews 11, they're held up for, for admiration, they're held up for imitation, 
but they're also held up for consolation. Because if you read Genesis, where, uh, where most of these people are, are, are listed, there's a couple in Exodus, a couple in Judges. If you read the Old Testament and you see these people that are held up as titans of the faith, they were just as messed up as you and I are. And if we die before Jesus returns, before King Jesus comes in, in splendor and glory and calls to himself men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation, when Jesus comes back and, and the perfect city, the new Jerusalem, heaven itself descends out of the clouds and comes to earth, if we die before Christ comes back and makes all things new, if we die before any of that happens, may it be said of us what is said of the men and women at the end of this passage in verse 13. All of the, all of these people died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they themselves were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your steadfast love throughout all generations, from the first people up through us today and until the moment that you return, everyone who calls upon your name. We thank you for the truth of the cross, for the miracle of the resurrection, and for the sure and certain anchor of hope that we have in the world to come. God, for those who are here today that have no faith, we pray that you would give them faith. For those who are here today that have a clouded faith, we pray that you would bring them clarity. For those who are here today that have a sagging faith, we pray that you would revive them. And for all of us here today who live by faith, God, will you give us the same determination and desire to live out that faith by following Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.